0: I invite you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Genesis, first book in the Bible. If you had it, have it in book form, it's easy to find, Genesis chapter 32, and today I'm departing from my normal approach to preaching where I take a text and just explain it, going through a passage, it's going to be more topical today, but I'm confident that the Lord wants me to share what I'm sharing with you today, what He's given me to share with you. Today we're looking at Genesis chapter 32, and I will allude to this episode recorded in the Word of God about a man named Jacob and his brother Esau. Genesis chapter 32, verse 1, Now as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. And Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he named that place Mahanaim. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He also commanded them, saying, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. And I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants. And I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau and furthermore he is coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and his camels into two companies. For he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who does say to me, return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me, the mothers with the children. For you did say, I will surely prosper you. And make your descendants as a sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered by multitude. So he spent the night there. Then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau. Two hundred female goats and twenty male goats. Two hundred ewes and twenty rams. Thirty milking camels and their colts. Forty cows and ten bulls. Twenty female donkeys and ten male donkeys. And he delivered them into the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on before me, and put a space between droves. And he commanded the one in front, saying, When my brother Esau meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong, and where are you going, and to whom do these animals in front of you belong, then you shall say, These belong to your servant Jacob, It is a present sent to my Lord Esau, and behold, he also is behind us. Then he commanded also the second and the third, and all those who followed the droves, saying, After this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, Behold, your servant Jacob also is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward I will see his face, perhaps... He will accept me. So the present passed on before him while he himself spent the night in the camp. Now he arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream, and he sent across whatever he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, He touched the socket of his thigh, so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. So the man said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed." Then Jacob asked him and said, Please, tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel. For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of his hip. It's been said that loneliness is the most desolating word in the English language. When Nelson Mandela spent 27 years as a prisoner, a political prisoner, in South Africa... His captors did everything they could to strip him of all sense of value. Among those things which he was subjected to was solitary confinement. Each time he was put into solitary, he was put there as a result of his engaging in subversive activity of some sort. This is what Mandela wrote in his book, Conversations with Myself after being released from prison for 27 years. Can you imagine? Eighteen of which were lived out on Island Robin, or Robin Island, which would be the equivalent in America to Alcatraz, an island isolated, impossible for people to escape because of the distance of the water and the shark-infested waters. This is what he wrote in the book about solitary confinement. He said, solitary confinement. Confinement is the most forbidding aspect of prison. There is no end. There is no beginning. There is only one's mind. And that mind plays tricks upon him. And then he concluded by saying this. He said, one begins to question everything. Is it a dream or is it really happening? Solitary confinement is, of all types of punishment, the most cruel and unusual of punishments because of the outcome in most cases. What we need to understand is that we probably will never be in solitary confinement, literally. But someone in this room came here today feeling as if you were in solitary confinement. The circumstances of your life have conspired to just lock you up, And it was everything you could do to get up this morning, to get in your car and come here. You doubted whether you should. You debated whether you should. This message is for you. Loneliness is not a new phenomenon. That's obvious. Pop culture during my lifetime has memorialized loneliness in song. Poetry set to music. The first song I'm going to refer to, I'm not going to sing it. That's a great relief. To you and to me was Hank Williams Sr.'s number one hit among many of such hits. He said, I'm so lonesome I could cry. You ever been that lonesome? Maybe you did cry. And ten years later, Paul Anka, more of you could remember Paul Anka than Hank Williams Sr., but Paul Anka had two number one hits, and one of them was, I'm just a lonely boy, and I'm really. Working hard not to sing that song right now. It's unbelievable. The next year, Roy Orbison, a pretty woman thing. Roy Orbison, a fellow Texan, wrote this song. Only the lonely know how I feel. Isn't it true? Only people who have experienced loneliness understand you really when you suffer from loneliness. And then, if you were to go to 1969, I'm more in my era now, Three Dog Night song, One. Remember it? One is the loneliest number you will ever do. For you country western fans, Barbara Mandel in 1978 sang a song that soared up the charts to the top ten country western music. Sleeping single in a double bed. These songs... Do indeed underscore that loneliness is in every era in history. Another thing we want to consider about loneliness is it's no respecter of persons. Einstein, the greatest mind, some people would say, especially in the 20th century, said this. He said, It's a strange thing that one can be known internationally and yet be so lonely. Here's the most brilliant man in the world, riches upon riches, I'm sure, admired by so many. But he was yet lonely, because loneliness is no respecter of persons. A recent survey was taken at the end of last year. It was produced for public consumption in the first month of this year, prior to COVID-19. And this survey showed that three out of five American adults are lonely. Isn't that interesting? A similar survey had been taken just two short years before, and the percentage was 47%. That's a big jump, isn't it? From 47 to 60% in just two years. Would you say that loneliness is epidemic? I will say it because of these statistics. I will also say it. On the word of a former U.S. Surgeon General who served in the last term in that position of President Obama. His name is Vivette Murtha. Dr. Murtha, as part of his responsibility, was to go all over the United States to get his finger on the pulse of the health of Americans. And like any good physician, we had doctors in our early worship service, there are physicians in this service... A good physician, when he's diagnosing someone, will get some information from those whom he diagnoses or she diagnoses. Isn't that right? Doctors want to know what you think, what's going on with you. And as he conversed, he was surprised at what he discovered. This was in 2017. He discovered almost universally, when he would ask the question about the people's health, he would get some kind of response like this. They said they were lonely. And just recently, this same Dr. Murtha, this same doctor, in May of this year, deep into COVID-19, listen to what he said. He said, being in isolation alone is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It's not healthy to be in isolation all the time. Now, I'm not taking exception with... Social distancing and all that. But look, God knows what He's saying when He says, Do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. God wants us to meet with Him and with one another so He can be glorified. It is true that loneliness is not a respecter of persons. Elvis Presley, he and I grew up in the same town, Memphis, Tennessee. And his lover, after he and Priscilla Presley divorced, Linda Thompson, she and I were classmates at the university there in Memphis. And in an interview after Elvis passed away, she was asked, did Elvis ever express loneliness? And she jumped on that very quickly. She said, he would say often to me, I am intensely lonely in my heart. Here was the idol of literally millions of people. He would be ganged by people. Wherever he went, he was adored. Even to this day, calls are received at Graceland, where he lived, asking to speak to the king, Elvis. Can you believe that all these years after he's been gone? But here was a man who was deeply lonely. Loneliness is not a sin. But it can be symptomatic of sin. I'll get to that a little bit later. Let's look at the contributing factors to loneliness. I've divided them into five categories. There's some overlapping, and you could probably think of better ways of categorizing. The first category would be physical. The physical category has to do with people like my age group, which is aging. Do you know, aging has a way of accelerating as you gain more years. You young people, thank God for you. Enjoy your youth. That's what the Bible says. Enjoy it in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Do it under the clear indication from Scripture that you will give an answer to God for your life. So be sure you're doing it in the way He would have you to enjoy your life, but enjoy it. But as we grow older, there's a tendency that our old age has a way of forcing us out of circulation, putting us in the corner, as it were. Also, another thing in the area of the physical that creates isolation and loneliness is a confining illness. There are people in our church who are confined because of debilitating health issues. They would love to be right here today to worship the Lord with us. Some of them probably are even worshiping by way of live streaming with us today. God bless you if you're in that category. We love you and we're praying for you. Another physical disability that creates great loneliness is barrenness. A woman who desires to have children. She cannot, it seems, bear children. A couple which has assumed that There will come a time in their marriage where they will be able to have a child and maybe have many children. We mourn with those who have miscarriages. Those babies are real people. And to lose a child by miscarriage is a loss to people. But may I share from personal experience another loss? I and my wife assumed we could have children out of our union. But it was discovered that we could not. We were physically banned, as it were, from that great privilege. And I remember when I picked the phone up to call my in-laws to tell them I broke down, choked on my words, because I was so disheartened by the fact. But by God's grace, God allowed us to adopt two children whom we love. I can't imagine loving my natural-born child if I were to have one any more than I Grew to love my children the first time I ever saw them, put my eyes on them. They had me. Another area besides the physical is the psychological. Some people in this room were born with a strong, melancholy bent. Do you know what I mean? Some people were born to always look on the dark side of every situation. Never look on things optimistically, always pessimistically. Maybe you're such a person, or at least you have a, an aspect of your personhood that's like that. Your temperament is like that. And you are more subject to loneliness. Depression is like a prison in and of itself, isn't it? Because you don't want to see anybody when you're depressed. You don't want to talk in, to anybody. And you're isolating from people that really could be the key that would unlock the door to some degree of enjoyment in your life when you do that. But it happens anyway. So there is physical input to this matter of loneliness. There are psychological factors involved. And then there are relational factors. Widowhood. There are widows, I'm sure, here today. And you have suffered a lot in your widowhood, and it's been something that's been difficult. I'd like to read one part of a journal entry by a woman named Elizabeth Elliott. Miss Elliott was one of the greatest missionaries in the middle part of the 20th century. Her husband Jim and she went to minister to a group of unreached people in the Amazon basin in Ecuador, They were accompanied by four other couples. They did their preparatory work. They sought to make contact with these people to show that they were not interested in harming that group of people, the Alka Indians. The big day came in early January of 1956. They boarded their little plane. They went into this area, landed on a sandbar where they saw these Alka men gathered They got out and they were surprised because they were ambushed and all five of them were killed that day. Leaving five widows and I can't remember how many children. But Elizabeth, Elliot, and Jim had children of their own. After she had been furloughed back to the United States, writing in her journal, listen to what she wrote. Silent, swift, implacable. The scythe has swept by and we are left. The mail comes. The phone rings. Wednesday gives place to Thursday and this week to next week. You have to keep on getting up in the morning and comb your hair. And then in parentheses, she says, for whom? Eating breakfast, again in parentheses, remember to get only one egg now. Making the bed, a third parentheses, who cares? Widows have that to deal with. She was a young widow, still in her 20s when she lost her husband. God was good enough to her to restore her. She went back to the same place. Believe me, this is unbelievable. She went back to the same place and ministered to the same people who killed her husband and her friends. And some of the people who were in on the act came to know Jesus. And she was responsible for that. Who would have blamed her if she had stayed home in the safety of America? I would not. Would you have? Absolutely not. But God restored her. She went on to be remarried. Had a good marriage with her second husband. He passed away. She was widowed the second time. Married the third time. And that man who was a professor at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, a good mate to her, took care of her as she spent the last few years of her life fighting Alzheimer's before dying. Widowhood is difficult, but look, what I've observed is it's even harder on widowers. There's some widowers probably in this room today. C.S. Lewis, there's hardly a person present who has not heard of his name, And if you haven't heard of his name, you have been touched in some way by somebody who has. C.S. Lewis was a confirmed bachelor, he and his brother Wardy. He was a scholar. He was unbelievable. He was an introvert. He was a real nerd, let me tell you. But he was a man who was a genius. He was an atheist who came to be an agnostic who came into the kingdom of God. And by the way, he said in his testimony of his salvation... He made this comment about his own step into the kingdom of God. He said, I came kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. In other words, he came with both heels dug in, but he was no match for the Lord. Somebody here today has been fighting, giving your life to the Lord. May I tell you, you're not going to win that any more than Jacob won the wrestling match with the Lord that night at the river Jabbok, recorded in the book of Genesis. So this is what he said in his own book. It's a rather grim book, by the way. He ended up marrying. He married the woman in a civil service as a gesture of kindness because her name was Joy Gresham. And she had come there really to meet him. She had a real crush on him. In a way, she was an authoress herself, but she loved his writings. And she came there, and her boys and she, who were bereft of their father because of divorce in the family, they wanted to stay there, and he said, Okay, Joy, I'll sign for you, and you and the boys and yourself, you three will be safe here. You'll be legal. Then they fell in love. He fell in love with her, and they married. And then she was taken away from him. By cancer. This is what he said in his book, A Grief Observed. He said, Oh God, why did you take so much trouble to force this creature, speaking of himself, out of its shell? Probably thinking of a snail or a clam. Why, Lord, did you force this creature out of its shell if it is now doomed to crawl back, to be sucked back into it? What was he saying? I'm an introvert. I was doing fine until I got married. And I believe you wanted me to marry. And then you took my mate away from me. It's hard, isn't it? On widowers just as surely as the loss of a mate is on a woman. Another category of relational loneliness are divorcees. Many of you have been divorced. And it's no... No game, is it? It's no fun to be divorced. It breaks your heart. It defines you if you let it. I'll never forget the first church I pastored. We just erected a second building. It was kind of a a joyful occasion for me to see the Lord work to provide the money for the building. We paid it debt-free. So exciting. And one of the things I insisted upon in that building is we would... Build a prayer room that was accessible from the outside. You didn't have to go inside, but a prayer room that was accessible from outside. And I would sometimes study in a room next to that. It so happened it was a night. It was uncommon for me to go to that place to study at night to prepare a sermon. But I had barely sat down when I heard someone open the door and then go in and close the door. It was no time before I heard... Weeping and then sobbing and then crying out to God. I recognized the voice. It was a woman named Dell. Dell was a single mother. She had a boy of about 12 years old. I couldn't hear what she was saying exactly, but I knew the gist of it was Oh God, please deliver me from this loneliness. You know that. Some of you know that loneliness as a result of having suffered. Divorce Certainly that is a relational issue, isn't it, that creates great loneliness. Then singles, I know widows are single and divorcees are single, but there are a lot of people who've never been married who are single. Thirty-two percent of all Americans live alone. That's a third of the adult population. That's a lot of people, isn't it? Women, maybe someone here, single never been married, wanting to God to send you just the right man to marry. You may have had several near misses. You may not have even had a bite. And your heart longs to have a family. You desire deeply to become a mother and raise a child or children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But that day has not come yet. I think about the biblical character Hannah. Do you remember Hannah? in The book of First Samuel? Hannah was one of two wives his rival was Penina her rival rather was Penina their husband was Elkanah and she was barren every time Penina turned around she was pregnant and there were several children and when they would go to worship the Lord annually at the feast of the Passover well they'd all go and every one of the children of Penina got a portion of the sacrifice which was made by Alcana in addition to Penina, But there was Hannah reminded, every time a child was born, reminded that she was barren. And you remember the story how she was praying and crying out to God. And she wasn't crying out loud. She was praying to God and her lips were moving, but no words were coming out of her mouth. And do you remember what the priest thought about her? It was early in the morning. She was drunk, is what he thought. And she convinced him otherwise. Here's a lady whose husband said, Honey, you know I love you more than I do Penina. I'm going to give you two portions. That didn't satisfy the throb in her heart because of her barrenness. Marriage without intimacy. Many people here in such a marriage. There may not be any emotional intimacy. There may not be any sexual intimacy. And you are very alone in your marriage. I know that's true. I don't know who you are, but I'm sure there are many families like that. Get right, mates. If you're mates here today together, get right, okay? Do what the Word of God says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave Himself for the church. Wives, submit to your husbands. Respect your husbands. And both, by the way, are unconditional. I'm not to love my wife if she submits to me. I'm to love my wife, period. Always loving my wife. Laying down my life for my wife. And this is true for every person who knows Jesus who's married in this room today. Bring intimacy into your marriage as you grow together in the Lord. Another relationship that creates a great deal of Loneliness at times is leadership. Some of you have your own businesses. You know what it's like, do you not, to be lonely? When you have to make the big decision about what's to be done. Some men in this room and women in this room are administrators in high schools. It's lonely, isn't it? It looked pretty good when you were moving up the ranks. You got your master's in school administration, maybe even another certificate, maybe even a doctor's degree. But also, in addition to that, you became an assistant principal. Well, that was a little more heavy, and you griped a lot about that probably, having to be the errand boy for the big guy. But now you're in the hot seat. It's different, isn't it? It's different. It's hard. It's lonely in places of leadership. Rejection in general is a relational problem. And I'll talk more about that later when we look at the cure we're just looking at the symptoms now. Another category, and this is a long category, circumstantial issues, factors, that of loss. We've already talked about losing a mate, but what about losing a child who's moving out because it's time for him or her to move out? Mothers especially tend to have a problem with this and I don't mean it's a problem I mean you're more tender-hearted mostly than we fathers are I'm not saying that we shouldn't be but it's just the nature of women to be more nurturing than we are I remember hadn't been gone very long from home after marrying I went straight from my home at the age of 21 married and my wife and I I don't know if we had moved out of town yet we lived in the same town for about two years almost, before we moved out of town, never moved back. But my mother and I had a moment, probably a few months into the marriage, and it was a great moment. I loved my mother very much. She was a wonderful mother, and she loved me. I was her only child for the first eight years of my life before my sister came along. But she said, Mike, I'm just going to tell you something. I don't mean it in any way except just to be flat out honest with you. She said, for the first two or three months after you left, almost every day I'd walk into your closet. And didn't have your clothes in there. Oh yeah, there are a few that I want you to go throw away today. I'm tired of looking at those clothes, you know. But she said, I would I would smell your fragrance. and probably had to be with high karate or something like that. You, you older guys know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> Put that cologne on, you know? But loss. Empty nests. Loss. There are other kinds of loss. Loss of jobs. Employment. You ever been unemployed? You ever had somebody say, you're done. We don't have any need for you anymore. That's rejection, isn't it? That's a circumstantial situation. I'd like to read three excerpts from a letter written by a journalist to the general population of New Zealand. He was a New Zealander, a Kiwi. His name is Michael Thompson. Listen to his words. This will give us insight. He was a follower of Christ. You'll see that. As the situation went from bad to worse, I applied for more than 100 positions earlier this year before I obtained my present temporary one. I began to realize that as a Christian, I could no longer look to man for my solutions. But only God was my ultimate deep emotional and spiritual anchor. Unemployment is a draining time, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. But through it all, we found our local church most supportive and encouraging and practical. Well, you ask me, where is God through all this? Like the psalmist, I often asked myself why I was cast down, and always his answer came back, Hope you in God. My faith, background, life experiences, and Bible training in my church ministry enabled the Holy Spirit to bring many things to my remembrance. I have learned also that when you are in a position of comfort and affluence, it's so easy to speak glibly about trusting God. You hear me? You hear him? He said, we don't want sympathy. He's talking about the unemployed. Unemployment is a very personal and private thing. Don't try to understand it or stand in judgment. After all, all unemployment is a traumatic and tender time for those who are its victims. Unemployment, circumstantial, Puts a position, puts a person in a position of loneliness. Also, urbanization. Do you know that in 2016, there were in the world 436 cities of one million or more? It's projected in 2030, that's going to rise to 569 cities. People rush to the city And then when they get there, they don't find what they think they're going to find when they're coming from rural areas. They find loneliness. And that loneliness becomes a great burden. It's circumstantial. The technological age in which we live, where we have virtual friends, those two words don't even go together. I'm sorry. A friend is real with flesh and blood. Not some virtual something hologram or something like that. Another circumstantial burden of loneliness comes in some cases when you're an only child. You might say, what are you talking about, Mike? I know what it was like to be an only child for eight years and how I prayed to the Lord, Lord, please give me a brother or sister. And it was something I was really wanting. Maybe not for the right reason. It's because all my friends had brothers or sisters. I didn't have one. I wanted a brother or a sister. But what I do know, my mother was an only child, never had a sibling, and she was a godly woman, but I know she wished at times that she had a brother or a sister. What about adopted children? I mentioned that our, our children are adopted, but adopted children, my children have wondered, who is my parent? Who's my father? Who's my mother? Well, I don't take offense to that as an adoptive parent. I want to, I've told my kids more than once, hey, look, I'll help you find your mother and father. I'll pay for whatever it costs. If you need to, I would understand. I won't be bothered to satisfy a need you have. But loneliness is experienced by such people. Here's one that probably blankets everyone here, and that is failure. Have you ever failed? If you've really tried at something, you failed at something. You're going to try to do something that's out of your reach in your life, and you failed. And it's awful to fail in the sense of what it does to you, typically, emotionally. But look, listen to what... Churchill said, the great prime minister, on more than one occasion, I think maybe three times he was prime minister of Great Britain, and in the most important time, it was during World War II. He said, success is never final. Failure is seldom fatal. It is courage which counts. We have to be courageous. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love And self-control failure is just a way of learning what doesn't work. Thomas Edison failed so many times if you study his life. He was one of the greatest inventors in the history of the world, much less the United States. But he failed and he failed and he never took it personally. He said, I've just found one more way not to do it. So we need to understand... That failure is not designed to define us. It is, I believe, has been in my life designed to make me want to come closer to God. Every failure has been accompanied by a quantum leap spiritually. I don't want to have any more. I'll just be on record like that. But I'm sure I will probably if I live long enough. I'm tired of making failures. Are you? Relational failures? Professional failures? Financial failures. You put in the adjective of your failure. And most of us have multiple adjectives to go with the word failure, don't we? But don't let that marginalize or define you. Trust in God. Let it be an incentive to listen more carefully to the Lord the next time you're making a decision. that's life-changing, possibly. Let's talk quickly about the cure. Jacob in that passage in which you read, there's one little sentence that says, Jacob was alone. This man had had a life of mostly being with people. Remember, he had, in essence, four wives, eleven children, many male servants, female servants. He lived in a little city, didn't he, really, with all those people. And he was alone. He was afraid. Why? Because he had cheated his brother Esau, who was his twin, his older twin. He cheated him out of his birthright and his blessing from the father. He cheated him. Took everything that was symbolically meaningful to a male descendant of Abraham. Took it away from him. And then mama said, hey, you better get out of here. Because if you don't, you know your big brother he was only about 15 seconds older, but he, you know your big brother. He was a man's man, Esau, wasn't he? He loved to hunt. He loved to do man stuff. He would have had a program if he lived today on the hunting cha- channel. But what did Jacob do? He liked to make stew in the kitchen. He would have been on the cooking channel. He would have been no match for his brother Esau, and he knew that. He was a conniver. His name, Jacob, means conniver. Manipulator. A person who tries to take control in sly ways, in roundabout ways, all the time. And so he was scared. He was alone. But it was a great aloneness, wasn't it? Because what happened? He met God. And he knew that he was dealing with someone different. And he clung to him. The Lord could have just shucked him off with no problem whatsoever. He could have spoken him off. But he let him keep wrestling with him because he wanted him to see who he was. He wanted Jacob to come face to face with who he was, his name. He asked Jacob his name and he said, it's Jacob. He wanted that to sink into Jacob. So Jacob could really, for the first time in his life, face up to his real nature, his real character. And then he took his hip out of place. And he walked for the rest of his life with a limp. And I would imagine, there's no direct reference to this in the Bible, but I would imagine that Jacob, every step he would take, said, Oh, blessed hip. It hurt. Can you imagine having a hip dislocated and it be out of socket for the rest of your life? He lived a long time after this. But what we see is he came face to face with the Lord. You know, Jacob's loneliness was due to a lack of intimacy with God. Do you know that? And you know what blocked intimacy with God? That which blocked intimacy with God was his sin. You know what his sin was? It's the same problem every one of us has. It's a sin of independence. Saying, I've got this. I'm going to do this. Get out of my way. I don't need any help operating independently, not giving God his due. He'd had an encounter with God when he was trying to get, after, get away from Esau. He lay down in an area, he slept, and he had a dream. And the dream was angels ascending and descending from heaven. And when he awoke, he said, I'm going to call this place Bethel, which in Hebrew means house of God. He said, because God is here, and I did not know it. He had that possibility 20 years before this experience. To get right with God, but he just delayed and he delayed and he delayed. He put it off. He delayed developing intimacy with God. As we read that passage, I know some of you caught it, where he was talking about, as he prayed to God, he said, Oh Lord, God of my father. Did he say, My God? Why didn't he say my God? Because God was not his God. Maybe you're a person who has a father or a mother who are godly, and you have nibbled around the edges of commitment, full commitment to the Lord, and you're just leaning on daddy or leaning on mother's faith. Look, there are no grandchildren of God. You can just be a child of God. And if you're going to get into heaven, it's not going to be based on your daddy or your mother. Maybe they're for sure, but you have to make your own surrender to the Lord. Just like Jacob finally had to say, uncle, when the Lord put him on the ground, put him on the mat. This is important. We have to have a relationship with God. And the thing that separates us from God is very clear. In Isaiah 59-2, the Bible says, your iniquities, your sins, have separated you from God. God has such pure eyes, He can't look on sin. This is the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. What does that mean? God made Jesus Christ the perfect human and God in the flesh. He made him to become sin. My sin and your sin in order that we might become right with God. We can have intimacy with God. We can have what the Bible calls eternal life. And remember, eternal life is not pie in the sky. It's not heaven. That's the long-term plan, but what the Bible says, when you receive Jesus in your life, you receive abundant life, you receive the capacity to not be cratering under the pressure of loneliness. The fear of God is sorely missing in churches today. And in America, it's barely noticeable. But do you understand that the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of God, and that means just realizing that He is God and you owe Him everything and He owes you nothing. In His mercy, He shows us His love and He saves us. Thank God for that. If we fear God, this is my plea to all people, whether you know Jesus or not, fear God. Because the Bible says the fear of the Lord leads to life. Abundant life. Everlasting life. And the thing that's said about Jesus that I really appreciate so much, maybe it's just because it's where I am in my pilgrimage at this point, but in Isaiah 11 when the prophet is prophesying the Messiah, he says about this Messiah, among other things, he will be a, a man of understanding and knowledge and he finishes and the fear of the Lord. And he goes on to add one postscript to that last statement. He will be one who delights in the fear of God. Jacob learned to delight in God. Not just to use God. Look, if you're using God, you're fooled. You just may think you are. Come to the Lord Quit pussyfooting around and give your life fully to the Lord. Also, sin separates us from other people. Loneliness, we're lonely. We don't have any friends. We don't have someone that we can tell our woes to as a spouse. We don't have someone to help us in decision making. Well, look, God is your mate, in a sense, but... Until you know Him, you're really not ready to be the kind of husband or wife God wants you to be. And then it still requires constant maintenance. The Bible says in Mark eleven twenty five, Jesus says this, If you stand praying and have something against someone, I will not hear your prayer. What's He saying? You can't have intimacy with Me, is what Jesus says, if you're at odds with others who know the Lord. Some of you have a problem of loneliness because of your sin that amounts to refusing to give forgiveness to someone who's hurt you. They did it to me, I say. Yeah, I know that, but there is no thing you can do except do what the Lord... And it's so freeing when you forgive someone who has hurt you. The Bible says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. We need to encourage each other. And we read this in Psalm 68.6. What does it say? It talks about the lonely. What does God do with the lonely? He sets them in families. The church is the family of God. And the Lord sets us in the body of Christ not to just be an aggregation, but to be a congregation. We come together and we we want to know each other. This is not the place. You can get a little thing going here in relationships with other people, but we can't go deep here, but you can take the initiative to go deep with others in the Lord. And I encourage you to do that by God's grace. The Scriptures are very clear. We know that Ab- uh, Jacob tried to claim some promises. He, he was... Wise enough to do that. He's trying to manipulate God there, wasn't he? He said, you said I'd prosper if I went back and did what you said. So he was said that twice in this praying he did to the Lord. So we need to be men and women who claim the Word of God. What does the Bible say? God says, I will never leave you. I believe that. Do you? I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. No matter how dark the valley, no matter how deep the The flood that you find yourself in. God is with you if you know Him. It seems like He's absent. He's there. If you know Him, He's with you. He's never going to leave you or forsake you. We need to do a lot of putting up with one another in the body of Christ. That's what Colossians 3.13 says. Bearing one another, forgiving one another, just as Christ has forgiven us. Praise the Lord for His forgiveness We have one another. Do you know how many times the Bible uses in the New Testament commands to love one another, serve one another? Oh, on and on it goes. We're part of the family, the family of God. Nothing pleases the Father more than our loving Him. Solitude is not always bad. There's a difference between loneliness and solitude. After one of the busiest days of ministry in His life, it's found in Mark chapter 1. Jesus rises up. His apostles are asleep. He gets up. Way before dawn. And he goes out. The Bible says in the New American Standard, it says he went to a lonely place. Why did he want to be alone? So he could have the time alone without an interruption with the Lord. And God gave him a new direction. In this ministry, read about it. What he'd been doing was in the will of God. God's saying, hey, I want you to go do it this going forward. He told him. Jesus himself... The night he was betrayed, he said to his disciples, he said, My time has come, and you're going to be scattered, you're going to go to your own home, and you're going to leave me alone, but I am not alone, because the Father is with me. That's not just Jesus, that's us, because if we know him, he lives in us. You can give your life to serving other people. Serve them in the name of Christ. And you will find so much joy and it will take your mind off of yourself and your problems when you see the kind of problems other people have and you're ministering in the name of Christ. I have about seven illustrations here left, but I'm only going to give one. I'm glad of that. You are too, I'm sure. This is set in Melbourne, Australia, in the early to mid-20th century, a lady by the name of Hannah Hudgens. Miss Hudgens was a believer. Early in life, she developed a condition that was neurological, and she had such intense pain and caused her limbs on the extremities to wither, and her arms were amputated, both arms at just above the elbow, and her legs just above the knee. And who would have blamed her if she just curled up in the fetal position. I I don't think I could have done it. I hope I never have to face that. But rather than to be defined by that and to blame God for it, I'm sure she had some questions for the Lord. She may have blamed Him for some things, but she got over it. For 49 years she lived in a small cottage which she named Gladwish. She had a Part of that was her bedroom. She spent 98% of her time in the bed. She had someone to develop a contraption that would connect to her arm at the elbow. And then she taught herself how to write with this contraption. And so I'm told by a reliable source that when she wrote, it became beautiful cursive, as we would call it. Beautiful. And she would write letters to people all over the world who were hurting. People like her or worse or not as bad. And she would encourage them with the Word of God. She led many people to Christ. Her wall was full of pictures of people had sent a photograph to her of them at her request. People who had written her and said, I have given my life to Christ because you have introduced me to him. You got a problem? You lonely? I don't think it's as big as hers. The same Christ who lived in her lives in you if you know Jesus. It's awesome, isn't it? A.W. Tozer said Well, most of the world's great souls have been lonely. God calls us at times to loneliness, but we who know the Lord never really are lonely as we've said, because we know the Lord is with us. He gives us people that we can love who know the Lord already or who don't know the Lord and we can introduce them to Jesus and we have a ready-made family. Would you bow your head? Let me ask you the question. Are you intimate with God? Are you alienated, separated from God? Do you feel that you can't reach God? Maybe you came here wanting to know God. Well, this is what... Jesus says, if you've seen Me, you have seen the Father. The Father has sent Me to reveal Himself to you. And through Me, and what I've done to die for your sin, you can have forgiveness and fullness. That empty spot in your life that it aches, is pained badly, that can be filled by none other than Jesus Our responsibility is one of trusting Him with all our heart and saying, Lord, I don't deserve it to be forgiven. I don't deserve Your mercy and Your eternal life. Would You please give it to me? I want to make You the Lord of my life. Would You please, Lord, take control of my life? And if you're here today and you know the Lord, but you know you've been off in the ditch of loneliness and it has to do with self-pity. Maybe you've accused God of not being fair to you. It's time to repent of that. Just say, Lord, I'm sorry. I need to refocus. I need to bring myself under Your control again. Please, Holy Spirit, cleanse me. Take hold of me in a new way. Thank You, Lord. We do thank You, Father, for giving us this worship opportunity. And we want to leave here, not be done with worship, but go out and present our bodies as living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to You, so that we can glorify You. In Jesus' name, Amen.